0: Well, good morning. I think we will begin this morning, but let's open with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we heard this morning, we do gather here and ask you to open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things out of your law. This isn't for us uh, merely to uh, be able to mine treasure from this text because every text that you have given to us is a treasure. It is a prayer that we might be changed, that we might be able to understand what is here. And so we pray that your spirit would come, that he would open our eyes and our hearts to this text, and by doing so, transform us more into the image and the glory of Christ. We ask that you would do this in his name. Amen. So this morning, uh, I do have handouts for you, and I try to represent visually the sorts of things we're talking about. And I have begun on that handout uh, by giving you an outline of the text. That might seem rather boring and tedious, but there is reason for doing that. And I'll try and explain that as we go along a little bit here this morning. So the text that we're looking at is actually one big unit. Uh, Deuteronomy 12 verse 1 to Deuteronomy 13 verse 1 is roughly one issue that Moses is dealing with from a variety of angles. So that is one chunk of the text and we have broken that apart into several different sections. Last week we looked at Deuteronomy 12 verses 1 to 19 and part of that Uh, Actually, we looked at verses 1 to 14. That is how formal worship may or may not be done. There's the main command given in verse 2 and 3. So Deuteronomy 12, verses 2 and 3. This will be our review this morning, too. The Lord says, "...you shall surely destroy the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars." And burn their ashram with fire, you shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names out of that place. Instead of worshiping the Lord the way the Canaanites worship, or instead of worshiping in a Canaanite sort of way or destroying the Lord's things, Israel is instead supposed to joyfully worship where the Lord will choose to put his name not where they decide is a good place to worship. So we have in verses 12, 13, and 14, you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters, your male servants and your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. So again, not where Israel chooses to worship, but where the Lord chooses to worship. That brings us today to verses 15 to 19, where Moses begins to introduce some of the opportunities that this way of worshiping presents and some of the restrictions that this way of worshiping presents. So maybe we'll just start right there then this morning. Verse 15. So Deuteronomy 12, verse 15. This is new material now we're picking up for today. However, you may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you. The unclean and the clean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer, only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the earth like water. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain offering, or of your wine, or of your oil, or of the firstborn of your herd or of your flock, or any of your vow offerings that you vow, or your freewill offerings or the contribution that you present. But you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. Now let's be frank. Deuteronomy has an awful lot of repetition in it. Almost everything that we've seen here in verses 15 to 19 has been brought up in some form or fashion in verses 1 to 14. It is unwise to simply skip over it because it sounds familiar. Moses is making a very significant shift here in what he's doing. So in that little outline, I said this is introduction to opportunities and restrictions on feasting, but there's a lot more going on here. An issue has been raised in verse 6 and 7. 7. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 6. To the place the Lord has chosen, there you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and all of your flock. How many of you off the top of your head know exactly what each one of those things are? Right? Um, that takes a little bit of, of background information, perhaps. But here's the issue. The issue is in regard to eating. In the ancient Near East, similar as in today, most celebrative occasions were celebrated by eating, right? How many of you have ever been on some sort of a diet restriction and you've gone to a place where people are eating and having a great time and you can't eat? Kind of takes the joy out of it, right? There's not much celebration when you can't eat what's set before you. Well, the same thing was the case for ancient Israel and all ancient cultures. Celebrations involved feasting. But meat was less common in the diet for them than it was for us for a number of reasons. First, never eat a heifer which is a cow that is capable of reproducing. Same thing with goats and across the board. Female livestock are usually more precious than male livestock simply because they can reproduce and they can produce, which means they can be used for milk and other things like that. In the ancient Near East, it was important generally to refrain from eating bulls. Bulls, of course, are necessary for reproduction, but not as many bulls are necessary for reproduction. But bulls do something that cows or female of the herd can't do, and that's manual labor. They didn't have tractors. They didn't have field equipment. Their field equipment was their livestock, and so they needed that livestock if they were to have any sort of uh, agrarian bent outside of simply raising the livestock itself. Usually, males were used in sacrifice. Partly, the reason for that is because you can use fewer bulls to breed a herd of females, so there's a practical end to using mainly males in your sacrifices. They're, frankly, in that respect, more expendable than females are. Sheep, for example. uh, They provided clothing. Goats provided milk and cheeses, so all of these animals were needed for, mean, for uses other than eating. Consider, too, that we live in an industrialized and inflated age. And what I mean by that is even the smaller operations around here have pretty decent-sized herds. The family farm I grew up on was not a large farm, but we still had a couple hundred head of cattle. And out of that, to pick off one or two, that's not a terribly big deal. So we'd butcher a cow or two every year. And in a herd of 200, that's not so terribly big. But if you have a small herd, it takes a long time to grow. And each one you take off of it is all the more precious. By the the time we account for wild animals, sicknesses and diseases, scarcity of grazing ground, And they weren't producing 200 bushel an acre corn. Scarcity of food. Keep in mind, southern Israel is pretty dry and arid. Northern Israel is not, but that's where you grow the crops, not where you graze your animals. Scarcity of food and the rate of repopulation. By the time you factor those things in, it took considerable time to grow a herd where taking one animal off of it to eat for food isn't detrimental to what you're trying to do in keeping alive your family and your animals. In modern times, a good cow in a cushy setting can produce maybe nine or ten calves in a lifetime. Probably not that way in the ancient Near East. Quite a bit less than that. So, all of this to say, there are good reasons why meat was a rare occasion in the diet. So the one time that you are almost guaranteed to get to feast on meat is when you are in the context of worship. Formal worship. That takes us back to the list of verse 6. So let's go back and go through what those different elements of formal worship were. First in the list, you shall bring your burnt offerings. With a burnt offering, the animal was killed, the blood was collected, the animal was skinned, the skin was given to the priests, the hide was given to the priests, and the rest of it was thrown on the altar. No one eats it. It is a whole burnt offering. By the way, the Greek word for that is holocaust. The whole thing goes up. This was an offering for appeasement. So if we go back to Leviticus 1. You know that book that's maybe your favorite one? Leviticus 1, verse 4 tells us what the burnt offering is for. The offerer, or the one who presents the animal, which is a male without blemish, which means not a steer, it means a bull, he shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now jump down to verse 9. Uh, but its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water, uh, which is simply that part of the animal that really can't be uh, skinned, and the, the inner parts. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, or an f- offering by fire, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord, which means it's appeasement. The offerer is hoping to appease the Lord with his burnt offering. He's seeking good relations with the Lord. This is the way he establishes those good relationships. So, back to Deuteronomy 12, verse 6. We dealt with burnt offering. The next on the list. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Most likely, sacrifices here is simply a catch-all for fellowship meals or peace offerings. Those sacrifices that are brought... Some of the animal is thrown on the altar, some of the animal is given to the priest as his due, and some of it is given back to the worshiper who enjoys a meal before his God. Usually these are had at the tabernacle. This is a fellowship meal. This is the one thing that is given that the worshiper is commanded to indulge in every time it's brought. excuse me, every time it's brought up in Scripture. So the worshiper actually eats the meat in this case. And it is the only time the worshiper eats the meat in uh, celebration at the tabernacle. Moving on. Verse 6 again. There you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes. That is a tenth of whatever is grown or bred. One more reason growing a herd takes a long time. Every tenth animal that goes under the shepherd's staff goes to the Lord. Leviticus 27, verses 30 to 32. Those tithes go to the Levites. If we looked at Numbers 18, verse 21 and following. So the tithes is a tenth of everything. It goes to the priests and the Levites. And there is a little bit of a question as to whether or not the person who brings them in worship is able to indulge in them. According to what we might call the legislation in Leviticus, they don't. If we go to the way Moses handles the tithe a little bit later on in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, chapter 19, for example, it looks like the worshiper does get to eat in some of that, but almost certainly that is not the animal portion, that is the fruit and grain and vegetable portion of the offering. Next, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 6, we've done burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes, and the contributions. Those are things that go specifically to the priests and the Levites. For example, how many of you grew up in a relatively rural church? Anyone? few of you? How many of you, when you were growing up, ever experienced something like what Pastor Andy has talked about? He takes his car to the mechanic shop, and when he goes to pick it up, he doesn't have to pay for it. Someone else already has. Right? That's not a tithe that is a contribution above the tithe that goes specifically to the priests or the Levites. That's what the contribution is. Beyond the contribution that you present, your vow offerings. Vows would be made in a time of crisis, and the worshiper says, Lord, if you will bail me out of this, I will do this for you. In return. Often those came by way of sacrifices. We know of uh, Jephthah's foolish vow. Uh, When he went off to battle in the book of Judges, he said, Whatever comes out of the door of my tent first, I'll sacrifice to the Lord. Happened to be his daughter. That is a vow offering. Next, your free will offerings. That is, whatever else is given to the sanctuary. Uh, to God, or to priests, or to Levites. Similar to a contribution, the difference is here uh, is that it can go a little bit broader even than contributions. It's basically anything that you give out of the goodness of your heart, sometimes for specific purposes, sometimes for not. So maybe a modern equivalent would be a church is doing a building project, and you say, I'm going to dig deep, I'm going to give an extra $2,000 to complete this building project. That would be considered not a contribution that goes specifically to the personnel. It goes to the operation of the temple or tabernacle or, in our modern setting, the church. That would be the closest thing we'd have to a free will offering. Lastly, firstlings. The firstborn of your herd and of your flock. This, again, is a little bit different than the 10th. So not only is every tenth animal given to the Lord, every firstborn is also given to the Lord. They go almost certainly to the Levites who held them for eventual use in temple worship. Every morning and every evening, the priests offered a burnt offering to the Lord perpetually. Feast days... Or uh, holidays, we might say, they offered more. Where do you think the Levites got those animals from? That came from the firstborn, and sometimes maybe from the tenth, but more likely that came from the firstborn that was given to the Lord. Those are, were what were used in temple worship. How often do you get to eat meat? when that's the way formal worship happens. It's pretty restricted. And remember, they had no refrigeration. If you butchered an animal to eat it, you had a few days. Or it's gone. It rots. So how often are you really going to sacrifice or slaughter, we might say, instead of sacrifice? How often are you going to slaughter one of your animals to eat it when you have a three, four-day window to do it. Meat is fairly rare, but nevertheless, the Lord assures Israel that he is going to provide them, provide for them, and he will provide an abundance for them. Let's go to Deuteronomy 12, verse 7. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. Not only will they be blessed for national obedience, so that they are able to rejoice before the Lord when they go to worship, there is a promise of abundance if Israel worships. Let's go back to Exodus 23. This is the end of the book of the covenant. Exodus 23, verse 23. When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and to the Hittites and to the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do as they do, which is what we've been seeing in Deuteronomy 12, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take away sickness from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. What does the Lord promise? Abundance. Not just so that you can eat when you go to worship at the temple, so that you can rejoice all of the time, It is a blessing that goes across all things, all animals. None will be barren. None will miscarry. Your flocks and your herds will increase, which we could, uh, if we went to the end of uh, Deuteronomy 28, for example, it's blessings for obedience. And one of the great blessings is you are going to have cattle coming out of your ears. Those, you'll be breeding so successfully. None are going to miscarry. All of them will grow. You will be blessed and you will be able to eat. So the Lord anticipates blessing Israel tremendously after he's given Israel the land. The question then comes, what do we do with our abundance? That is the issue Moses begins to address in verse uh, 15 and following. Before we get there though, I want to pause. Uh, We covered a lot of um, background information, thoughts, or questions over what we've covered so far? I thought that they did sacrifices every day, but it was just the burnt offering every day that they had done? A lamb twice a day. Right, not the season. So the, the first one that opens the womb is the way uh, Moses has put it elsewhere. So again, if you have an animal that only produces, if you can only get five, we'll, we'll use cattle for example, if you can only get five calves out of one cow, you've already lost one. The first one. So, great. And for hum, for humans. So the Lord took the Levites in place of the firstborn. Okay. Yep, for for humans. real and the firstborn into the That's a good question. Can you use the firstborn and the tenth uh, as the same one? I don't know. Um, I wouldn't think so because the tithe is taken, or the the firstborn is taken out, and I think the uh, tenth is supposed to be calculated outside of that firstborn. But Scripture isn't clear on that, so I'm sure there'd be some detailed rabbinic explanation of that. But the way I understand it is the firstborn is taken out, and after that, every tenth one, one goes in. Yeah. Oh, there are ways to cheat the system, I'm sure yes. <laughs> Good question. I've wondered the same thing. Anything else? All right. So what do we do with the abundance? Look at the back side of your handout, if you will. I listed all of the things that we just went over from Deuteronomy 12, verse 6. Those same elements of worship are given in the corresponding verses to the right. So, watch what happens now. This is is why structure is important. Let's begin in verse 13, where burnt offerings are brought back up as a topic. So, Deuteronomy 12, verse 13. Take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes. There you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. The next topic is sacrifices in verse 6. Let's look at verse 15. However... You may slaughter and eat meat within any of your towns as much as you desire, according to the blessing of the Lord your God that he has given you, the clean and the unclean may eat of it, as of the gazelle and as of the deer. Only you shall not eat the blood, you shall pour it out on the water uh, on the earth like water. Let's hold that thought for just a second. Let's move on to verse seventeen, where he takes up the remainder of of what was mentioned in verse 6. You may not eat within your towns the tithe of your grain or of your wine or of your oil or of the firstborn of your herd or of your flock or any of your vow offerings that you vow or your free will offerings or the contribution that you present, but you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose, you and your son and your daughter and your male servant and your female servant and the Levite who is within your towns. And you shall rejoice before the Lord, your God, and all that you undertake. What happened to sacrifices? Why is that one not specifically mentioned when everything else is? Let's go back now again to Deuteronomy 12, verse 15. It begins with, however. That however is not an exception to doing all that Moses commanded at the end of verse 14. So we don't read... Moses is saying, do everything I've commanded you, except there's one thing that you can change outside of what I'm commanding you. You don't need to pay attention to this thing I'm commanding you. That's not what he's saying. What he is saying is this. Do all that I am commanding you, but when it comes to sacrifices, there is an exception that we need to take note of. That exception is that you may eat meat within any of your towns. It does not need to be connected to the sanctuary. The reason he has to make this exception is because of what we find in Leviticus 17. So let's go back to Leviticus 17. This is the text that Moses has in the back of his mind in Deuteronomy 12, 15, 16, and then verses 20 and following. So Leviticus 17. Keep a finger in Deuteronomy 12 and keep a finger in Leviticus 17. I'll start reading in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons and to all the people of Israel and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp or kills it outside the camp and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord, blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field and that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. And the priest shall throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord." So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And if you say, and if you shall say to them, Any one of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, and does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord, that man shall be cut off from his people. Verse 10. If anyone of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you, On the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten. Shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is its blood, its blood is its life. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, You shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. So here's the rule Israel is in the wilderness, the tent is in the middle of the camp all of the Israelites encircle the tabernacle as they journey through the wilderness. And the Lord gives Moses this stipulation. If anyone kills an animal and doesn't bring that animal to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer that animal as a sacrifice, they will be cut off among their people. They will be excommunicated from the assembly of Israel and I will set my face against him. I will cut him off from among his people. So the only place, or maybe to say the only way anyone in Israel could indulge in eating meat is if they ate it at the tabernacle. That's where the animal had to be killed and the blood had to be thrown against the altar. What is someone to do when the tabernacle or the place that the Lord chooses is 50 miles away? Are they expected to bring their animal all the way to the temple in order to eat meat? Let's move on just a little bit now. Keep a finger in Leviticus 17. Let's go on now in Deuteronomy 12, pick it up at verse 20. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised you, and you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. You may eat meat whenever you desire. If the place that the Lord will choose to put his name there is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock with which the Lord has given you, as I have commanded you, and you may eat within your towns whenever you desire. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, so you may eat of it. The clean and the unclean may eat of it. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life, and you shall not eat the life with the flesh. You shall not eat it, which is the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. You shall not eat it, that all may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So now with the background of Leviticus 17, We can understand pretty well, I think, what is going on here in Deuteronomy. So twice in Deuteronomy 12, Moses says, As the gazelle and as the deer. And all he means by that is you can now take from your herd that the Lord has given you, and you may eat it just like you do any wild game. Instead of having to bring its blood to the sanctuary, you may simply pour it out on the ground and cover it with dirt, and you may eat the meat. So he is giving a concession to Israel. A couple of things worth noting here. First, in Deuteronomy 12, 15 and 16, when Moses gives the rule for the first time that you may slaughter and eat meat in any of your towns as much as you desire, what he's saying is the point of Leviticus 17 isn't to diminish pleasure. The point of Leviticus 17 is to train the people of Israel that everything they have is given by the Lord. All life belongs to the Lord. And because all life belongs to the Lord, all life is precious. Think of this. If one eats blood instead of pouring it on the ground, they are excommunicated from Israel. That is a pretty steep punishment, isn't it? But the Lord insists that there is no such thing as secular eating. All of it is sacred. All of it is given by the Lord. And when it comes from the herd, it is given to Israel in a very unique way. And that is acknowledged by bringing the blood to the altar in order to make atonement for their souls for the blood that they have just shed, even though it's an animal. Because remember, if they don't bring the blood, blood guilt is imputed to the person who shed the blood. Even animals in Israel have to abide by the law. And even animals in Israel are treated according to the law. So, what Moses is saying then in Deuteronomy 12 is that the intention of Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 6, by the way, where the sacrifices are to be brought to the Lord, the point of those texts isn't to diminish Israel's pleasure of eating. Rather, it was to prevent idolatry and ingratitude. That idolatry comes out very clearly in Leviticus 17, right? Where uh, verse 5 This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field. Then they might bring them to the Lord. And then verse 6, sorry, verse 7. They shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. It shall be a statute forever. But if it's a statute forever, is Moses changing Leviticus 17 now in Deuteronomy 12? How is Leviticus 17 maintained... When animals no longer need to be brought to the sanctuary, when he blows the doors open on what they can eat. We'll deal with that here a little bit as we go along. Something is going to be different in the future when Israel can kill domesticated animals as well as game animals wherever they live. Something is about to change. Real quick though, any thoughts or questions over Leviticus 17 and its background to Deuteronomy 12? Correct, but they are all animals that are candidates for sacrifices. So they're, they're clean animals that could be used in sacrifice that are now also open for their consumption. Yes. So Moses here, he's, he's doing uh, kind of a strange thing. Um, And in Hebrew, it's it's even a little bit more tantalizing. So in verse 6, bring all your sacrifices to the Lord. But actually, in verse... I'm sorry, I lost Deuteronomy 12 there. In verse 15, when it says, you may slaughter meat in any of your towns, the Hebrew word is the same thing. It's you may sacrifice in any of your towns. But then when we get to the end of the passage here in Deuteronomy 12... Uh, when we go down in verse 26, which we haven't gotten there yet, um, but the holy things that are due from you. So what that means is anything that you have set aside as holy, that you cannot eat in your towns. So if there is an animal that you have set aside specifically for a sacrifice to the Lord, you may not eat that in your town. That you have to bring. So he's making a distinction between what is actually sacrificed in table fellowship with the Lord, and what is eaten, or we might even say sacrificed, in table fellowship with others. And that's where we're coming to in a little bit. Make sense? Great. Yep. Yeah. Yep, well said. That's yeah. why they lost their land, kept them locked into slavery somewhere else. And then I don't think they could I couldn't do it. So then I tried myself understanding exactly what it was like to Well, and that's one of the important things about understanding you know, Leviticus 17, the statute forever. How is that statute maintained forever? even when the form of it changes in Deuteronomy 12. So there is something that changes, right? Um, You don't have to eat meat associated with the sanctuary anymore, but yet the heart of Leviticus 17 is entirely maintained, even with that change. Um, we, we, We live with a greater change yet, but the heart of it is still maintained. not to Israelite culture, Um, perhaps to other cultures. I don't know specifically. I can't speak to that very clearly. But the way uh, Scripture is laid out, Deuteronomy 9, er, I'm sorry, Genesis 9, uh, is where this first kind of comes up, uh, where life is in the blood um, sort of idea. That is also maintained in Acts at the Jerusalem Council. One of the reasons they tell Gentiles they cannot eat Blood is because they understand it to be a creation command, not merely a command of Sinai. This is not particular to redemptive history. This is the way the Lord operates, which is any time a life is given on our behalf, we are to recognize a life is given on our behalf, whether it's the blood of Christ or the blood of a cow. It's a life for a life. So that, that's creation, not redemptive specifically. Great question. Where did the animals that um, were forbidden for sacrifice, such as, as the ones of the where do they fall in, the, in the Those are the ones that are uh, best eaten. Um, before that, they could have been consumed too. They just had to be brought to the, the tabernacle and um, the blood. The blood given, but they cannot be used in sacrifice. So even in Deuteronomy 12, if there is an animal that has a blemish, it cannot be set aside as a holy thing to the Lord. And that goes back to what you were saying earlier. Surely, they would take the blemished ones and keep the best ones for their reproduction. And you can see how tempting that is, right? Um, we keep the best bulls for reproduction, don't we? Um, and the Lord says, "No, those are mine." Nevertheless, I'll still bless you for giving those to me. Um, and that's that's something that, I mean. The applications of that are are endless, right? Where we think, no, if I do it this way, it will work better. But in reality, what only works in the long run is when the Lord blesses. And so even when a path seems counterintuitive, if it's blessed by the Lord, you're better off. yeah we uh, we don't espouse a uh, wealth and health and wealth gospel, um, but the Lord always does provide, doesn't he yeah. great question uh, if you didn't get to hear it, uh, did they have someone keeping track of this? Yes and no. So when Israel is spread out in the land, a lot of it is, of course, on the honor system. Some of it could have, there could have been some level of accountability through Levites, because Levites were also scattered throughout the land of Israel. And um, the tithe, apparently, and some other things too, contributions and free will offerings, those things could go to what would be called local sanctuaries that weren't the temple or the tabernacle. They were Levitical outposts. And so one of the ways Israel cares for ministers is by taking care of those Levites who are within your towns, right? And so the Levite would be like the local... I hate doing it this way. But if the high priest is the pope, all of the other priests serving at the temple are the cardinals, then you have the priests scattered throughout the land and so there is a hierarchy there and accountability spread throughout but at the same time even your local Levite is probably not going to know all of the details of of your operation so there is definitely an element of the honor system but that doesn't mean that no one would be able to know what it is that you're doing besides the Lord. Sometimes I mean the The wicked do prosper, right? Anything else? Yeah, it's great. She mentions Genghis Khan in relation to drinking drinking blood of animals. I didn't know that. Thank you. <laughs> we good? All right, just a few minutes left. Abundance with abundance, verses 20 to 28. We already read most of it. But what is different in the future then? Verse 20. Deuteronomy 12. When the Lord your God enlarges your territory as he promised. The Lord gives abundance on top of abundance. So right now the stipulation of Leviticus 17 stands. All blood, all animals for consumption have to be brought to the sanctuary. But the Lord is going to do something more. He is going to bring about a change of situations. And notice this. Even though the Lord enlarges the territory, He doesn't have to take the restriction off Leviticus 17. The Lord graciously takes the restriction off of Leviticus 17. This is a double blessing. Not only am I going to give you so much land that bringing that sacrifice to me would be problematic, I'm going to grant you the concession of not even bringing it to the tabernacle to eat. So this is grace on top of grace. Otherwise, they would be limited primarily to a vegetarian and wild game diet. So when God expands Israel's boundaries, he doesn't diminish other pleasures. He indulges Those pleasures. And if you think that is a stretch, the word for crave shows up three or four times in this text. It shows up in verse, I believe, 15, and then it shows up again in verse 20 repeatedly. And you say, I will eat meat because you crave meat. You may eat whatever you desire. The word crave, the word desire, both of those are uh, used elsewhere in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 5.21 The last commandment. You shall not covet. You shall not crave. You shall not desire. And what the Lord is saying here is whenever you crave to eat meat, go for it. It's yours. You may have it. Indulge in it. The Lord is not restricting Israel. He is indulging Israel in a tremendous way. That is one indulgence. The second one comes up in verse 22. Just as the gazelle or the deer is eaten, which is all you have to do is pour the blood out on the ground and cover it up, so you may eat of it, which is the the flesh or the meat, The clean and the unclean alike may eat of it. This is a dramatic change. In Leviticus 17, a person had to be ritually clean in order to come to the tabernacle to consume the game. In fact, it appears almost everyone in the camp of Leviticus 17 had to be clean. There is an exception to that. We won't get into it today. But what the Lord does here is not only do you Are you able to eat meat wherever it is that you live? You don't even have to be ritually clean to eat the meat. Indulge in it. That is a second tremendous concession. So now, the Lord is going to give us borders that make coming to the central sanctuary problematic. He's going to let us eat whenever we want. He's going to give us the meat we need in order to be able to eat whenever we want and we don't have to be clean to do it. The Lord is just pouring out on his people, one grace after another. You can see why, Moses, uh, why Daniel Block calls it the gospel of Moses. Verse 25, though, ends with a concession clause. You shall not eat the blood, that it may go well with you and with your children after you when you do what is right in the sight of the Lord. So now the threat, again, of eating blood is excommunication, But the carrot, we might say, of not eating the blood is that the Lord is pleased with it. It is right in his eyes, and that is something that he blesses and causes things to go well with them. So this is not a a punitive motivation, it is a positive uh, motivation. Verses 26 and 27. But the holy things that are due from you, and your vow offerings... You shall take and you shall go to the place that the Lord will choose and offer your burnt offerings, the flesh and the blood, on the altar of the Lord your God. The blood of your sacrifices shall be poured out on the altar of the Lord your God, but the flesh you may eat, again dealing with sacrifices, same as in verse 6, be careful to obey all these words that I command you, that it may go well with you and with your children after you forever when you do what is good and right and the sight of the Lord your God. So has Moses changed the law of Deuteronomy 17? Yes, there is an advancement in circumstances because the Lord has done something more. And when the Lord does more for us, there are additional things to be factored in in how we live and in how we respond to the Lord. So God is not restrictive in granting pleasures. He is assertive in training us to look to him as the giver. So what has really changed is that the blood no longer has to go on the altar to make atonement for them. The blood may simply be poured out on the ground. That is now how Israel acknowledges the Lord is the one who gave the animal. On the other hand, The law is inalterable, and Leviticus 17 is a statute forever throughout your generations. Let's go back again to that second side of the sheet I gave you. In order, Moses dealt with burnt offerings in verses 13 and 14. Sacrifices is an outlier. See how it stands out from the others? Because in verse 17... Moses returns and finishes off the list of Deuteronomy 12.6 with contributions, free will offerings, vow offerings, tithes, so on and so forth. Do you see how sacrifices sticks out there? Moses skipped sacrifices in verses 13 and 14. Or did he? uh, In place of formal sacrifices at the tabernacle... And remember, up until now, eating meat has always been done in a context of worship. Moses ends with a note on how to worship. I don't know if you caught it. We skipped verse 18. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 12, 18 and 19. Referring to all the other things they bring, but you shall eat all of these other things besides... Um, the meat eaten at home, you shall eat them before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. You and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, and the Levite who is within your towns, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God in all that you undertake. And now here's the one that we missed, verse 19. Take care that you do not neglect the Levite as long as you live in your land. For the third time, Moses tells Israel, Rejoice before the Lord. And what's not to rejoice in, right? You are coming to have table fellowship with the Lord. That is the sacrifices of verse 6 and the sacrifices of verse 26. Rejoice before the Lord. Three times he stresses it. That is the equivalent to Leviticus 17's intentions. Don't offer them to goat demons. Come to the Lord. So again, if you have your finger still in, in Leviticus 17, watch what happens in verse 5 here. So Leviticus 17, verse 5. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrificed in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. That's table fellowship with the Lord. The way one acknowledges the Lord's generosity is about to change, and that is, you can eat meat anywhere. But the what um, the other thing, the other element in that, is that in place of sacrifices in the list of thirteen and fourteen, the Lord put someone else in his place, the Levite. This is the third time Moses has commanded Israel to envelop the Levite into a context of worship, of worshiping and rejoicing. So he mentioned the Levite in verse 12, once in verse 18, and once in verse 19. Do not neglect the Levite in your town. By putting him in verse 19, he's saying not only is the Levite included everything that has come, the Levite hangs over everything that is to come yet. Which means when you eat that meat at home, wherever you are, Take care to have the Levite around. The reason that is important is because the Levite stands for two things. The Levite is the divine representative, nearest you. The other thing is the Levite is usually paired with the poor and the orphan and the widow, those who are in poverty. And we saw a hint of that in verse 18, because he has nothing with you. Uh, Sorry, that was uh, verse... Maybe that was verse 18. It was somewhere in there. Uh, Because the Levite, uh, who has no inheritance among you. So he stands as well for the poor. So the Levite then becomes a word that is the crossroads between the divine representative and the poor. By the way, what is the criterion that the Lord separates the sheep and the goats on in the last day? You fed me, you clothed me, and you visited me when I was in prison. What does the Lord do when the borders are blown open? Include the Levite. Do not neglect the Levite as long as you live. And so the reason he places him there, where he does, in Deuteronomy 12, is that while the Levites are scattered all throughout, and before Moses goes into details on the facts and procedures of enjoying meat, away from the context of formal worship, he mentions the Levite. Which is to say, you are never really outside the Lord's presence. When you're eating meat in any of your towns, recognize the Lord is there. Drain the blood and invite the Levite. And function as the one who brings the Lord's blessings to others. Taking care of the needy is equivalent to enjoying God's gifts in his presence. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 9. We'll end here this morning. 2 Corinthians 9. I'm just going to read it. We don't have time to elaborate on it. Uh, But this is verse... We'll start in verse 6. And we'll go... Uh, to the end of the chapter, verse 15. So 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, "...enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only to supply the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of his service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ." and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, will they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. So this is what happens. In, Deuteronomy 7, in Leviticus 17, that joy is concentrated at the sanctuary, feasting before the Lord. In Deuteronomy 12, the doors are blown open on that, So that the joy of the Lord isn't only at the sanctuary, it is especially there. Rejoice in the Lord your God three times, Deuteronomy 12, at the sanctuary. But the doors on that rejoicing are blown open when that joy brings others into it all over the land of Israel. So the joy of the Lord is now not just at the sanctuary, it's all over the place. As the glory of God is spread and the thanksgiving to God is spread throughout the entire land. That's all I have for today. Uh, we are at time, so you are released, but I, I'm good for thoughts and questions. So, where have we been at the 17th? Where have we for all time? Yes. How does this apply in June 20, 23th the Jewish church? I believe what we just read in 2 Corinthians 9. I wouldn't... S- say that it erases it but it transforms it so in the same way the Lord's activity in giving Israel greater borders transforms the way Leviticus 17 functions it doesn't change the intention of Leviticus 17 but it does change the form of Leviticus 17 to Deuteronomy 12 because the Lord has done something more does that make sense? okay well the reason we are able to eat the reason we're able to rejoice with pork is because God has done something more. He's done something more in Christ. And so the way Deuteronomy 12 and Leviticus 17 play out in our day have to be taken in light of Christ's work, which is why we come to a place like 2 Corinthians 9, where it just takes a completely different form altogether. The sojourner sojourner is often included in that list, but when he deals with orphans, widows, and Levites, which he often does as a group, and sometimes he'll just use Levites as a catch-all for all of those, he's referring specifically to Israelites. He will often include sojourners in that list as well, though, and that would refer to the Gentiles who are living among them too. Any other thoughts or questions? If not, I will be here for a few minutes. Enjoy your Sunday afternoon. Thanks for coming.